0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a joy, as always, to be with you and open God's Word together, and I would invite you to do that now by turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6 uh, as we quickly approach the end of Paul's letter to these churches in Galatia. Galatians chapter 6, and as you are turning there, I would invite you to stand once again this morning for the reading of God's Holy Word. That's why you're turning there. I know some of you like to know these things, so we only have a couple of more weeks in Galatians, and then, as is our custom, uh, we rotate from Old to New Testament, and so we are going to, after Galatians in a couple of weeks, start in on Lamentations in the Old Testament, and then we will finish Lamentations in time for Advent. So, just to give you an idea of what the next couple of months hold for us in terms of the ministry of the Word. But this morning, we are going to confine ourselves to the first six, verse, six, first six verses rather, of Galatians 6. Let me read them in your hearing. This is the Word of God. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches." And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, please find your seats. Coming off of the heels of Galatians chapter 5, we can say that the Christian life is a life in and through and by the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's true. We've come to know the Father's great love for us, yes, and it's true that By the grace of God, we have turned from our own bankruptcy and have received the riches of Christ's gospel. That's all true. But not to be missed, the Spirit of God now lives inside of us and is doing a work whereby He further conforms us into the very image of Jesus Christ. And now, because the Christian life is a life lived in the Spirit, we've been exhorted. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. The Apostle calls us in Galatians 5.18, to be led by the Spirit. If all that wasn't enough, in Galatians 5.25, we are to live by the Spirit. And then that same verse, Galatians 5.25, we are told, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So catch this. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Here's the question. Okay, but what does all of that look like? Maybe I can ask it this way. What is true spirituality? And before we answer that, I think we need to at least acknowledge the fact that there are many, many forms of faux spirituality. That is to say, those outside of the church, and unfortunately those inside of the church, there's tons of pseudo-forms of spirituality in no particular order. We might think of the charismatic approach. For this person, it's all about what God told them, the dream they had, the tongues they spoke in, or the prophecy they received. The measure of true spirituality, it would seem, is in your own personal experience. On the other side of the spectrum, you've got what I'll call this morning the the brain-on-the-stick approach to spirituality. Here, emotions are bad. Feelings are to be avoided. Instead, we are like computers. We simply download biblical content and we store it away in a file on our hard drive. We know these Christians. These are the ones who <clears throat> are constantly listening to sermons. They've always got their earbuds in. It's the same ones who never attend prayer meeting and never actually do evangelism, but they're more than willing to tell you why you do it all wrong. These are the same folks that couldn't give a rip about anybody else in the church, but they'll smoke you in Bible trivia. Another form of faux spirituality is the liturgical approach. The idea here is really if we could just get back to this purer form of worship, then the mission would be complete and the kingdom of God would come. This gets cashed out in real life where you see so-called Protestants wearing clerical garbs, lighting candles, and waving incense all over the place. It's what we might call chasing smells and bells. Another rival to true spirituality is the mystical approach. Here I'm referring to the one who has a halo around his head. You know the guy. He sits over in the corner and he levitates and he can't be actually bothered to serve in the church or discipline his children. He is, after all, too busy meditating on the deep things of God. Then you have the Lone Ranger approach to spirituality. This is the character who isn't a part of a local church, and why would he be? All those people are just going to slow him down anyway. Besides, he knows he is spiritual because he always reads his two chapters in the morning all by himself. Another, Another pseudo form of spirituality is the abstinence approach. This is the idea where one's spirituality is really measured by just one single word, the word don't. Don't eat that food, don't marry, don't drink good beer, don't dance, don't, don't, don't. It isn't said, at least not too loudly, but true spirituality, it would seem, is best achieved by living in a monastery. Finally, and I will admit, I don't know what to call this, so here goes, you've got the outlandish approach to spirituality. Doubt me if you will, but it is altogether true. There are those who profess Christ while at the same time barking like dogs, clucking like chickens, and go grave sucking. Perhaps that last one needs some clarification. This whole thing started down in Bethel, Reading, which I need to say is not to be confused with the Bethel Church in Richland. They have no association or affiliation. This is associated with Bethel down in Reading at what is called BSSM. That is the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Yes, that is a real place you can send your children. There, students will be taught, among other things, to go to cemeteries of great Christian figures, to lay prostrate over their headstones, and to suck up that spirit of power that is still residing in this dead saint. This really is a thing. In fact, in the NAR cult, it's all the rage. NAR is New Apostolic Reformation. And just so that you know, in the same way that the Bethel in Richland has nothing to do with this Bethel, so the Reformation that we talk about has nothing to do with the New Apostolic Reformation. For this group, the more bizarre, the more spiritual. Now here's a problem with all that stuff. All of those forms of spirituality, they are woefully inadequate, and they are woefully inadequate because they do not do justice to God's Word. Or we could say it this way, they don't align with what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the Christian. But it's sort of easy to throw rocks and to point fingers, isn't it? we have to be able to answer the question, okay, if it's not that, then what does authentic, true, biblical spirituality look like? In a word, love. True spirituality is both measured and manifested by love. A love for Christ and a love for one another. I would have you to remember what Paul has been laboring here with the churches in Galatia. You will remember uh, these false teachers. These are a group who gravitated toward the law, and then they grabbed onto that law, and they were unwilling to let go. The old covenant, they thought, is how you become spiritual. So they were circumcised, they abstained from certain foods. They even reorganized their lives around some ceremonial calendar. Remember, they observed days and months and years. Basically, what they were saying is, we're going to make Moses Lord of our lives. And they thought that by doing so, that they would become extra spiritual. But Paul pushes back. He says, no. In fact, in Galatians 5.14, if you look there, we read Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And then Paul quotes from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So catch this, the Judaizers thought that the law was fulfilled by their efforts, by their doing stuff, but Paul counters, no, the law is actually fulfilled, that is to say, what the law revolves around and what the law is all about is what? Love. Don't miss this, the law isn't fulfilled with with either legalism or licentiousness. The law is fulfilled by love. The centrality of love is also why when Paul begins to list the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and and I just want to say, kind of in passing as a quick heads up, it is the fruit singular of the Spirit, not fruits plural of the Spirit. It is the fruit singular, meaning, I think, you, you really can't have one without the other. The fruit of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, is like a diamond, right? It has many sides, and, and depending upon how the light hits it and where you are looking at it, it is going to, to dazzle and be beautiful. But, but every light or every angle that that light hits, we recognize this is still just the one diamond, right? Well, likewise, the, the fruit of the Spirit, singular, it is what? It begins, Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love. So again, to be redundant, love is how we measure and manifest true spirituality. It's a love for Christ, and it's a love for the person sitting next to you. Enter Galatians 6. Now, as you are probably aware, the chapter divisions are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, They've actually been added along with uh, the, the verse numbers. And, and over the years, these have been added to help people like you and I better navigate our Bibles. So that when I say, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, you can find that. As opposed to just saying, open to Galatians chapter 6 and that part about helping someone who's overcome in a transgression. right? So, so the numbers, the chapters and number verses, those have been added but they've been added to help us. And that's all a good thing. But sometimes these chapter divisions might leave us with the wrong impression. The wrong impression here would be thinking that Galatians chapter 6 is hermetically sealed off from the realities of Galatians chapter 5. But that's not the case. Paul here in Galatians 6 is continuing to instruct us about life in the Spirit, about true spirituality, the same things that he was saying at the end of Galatians 5. And his concern here is this, love, please hear this, which is the fruit of the Spirit is manifested in altogether practical ways. In fact, Paul will mention four ways in which true spirituality is demonstrated, or if you prefer, four ways in which love is lived out. First, true spirituality will restore. Let me say that again. True spirituality looks like us seeking to restore. This is what Paul says in verse 1. Brothers. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Notice the context. This is a fellow Christian who has been caught or overtaken in some sin. The specific sin, you ask? Well, we don't actually know for certain, do we? but it probably has something to do with the works of the flesh that were found back in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19, 20, and 21. But again, we don't know all of the details, and I want to suggest to you that that is actually by design. In other words, the point here is that a fellow brother or sister in the church is caught up in some sin. The specifics don't matter. It is sin. What does matter, though, is our response to the whole situation. Church, what is your response to be? Well, we know what it's not, don't we? We are not called upon here to a hands-off approach, are we? Our attitude that we ought to adopt in light of this passage is not to be something like, well, you know, I don't want to rock the boat or, well, I mean, it's not really my problem. We're not, we're not to have this, well, I, you know, I just don't want to intrude. Besides, I'm not an elder. I'm not a pastor. It's not, it's not my job to handle this stuff. It's their job to handle this stuff, right? This is why we pay them. I want you to be mindful of something. You will look in vain here in Galatians chapter 6 for any mention of the elders or pastors of the church. Similarly, when you look at the other passage in passages in the scriptures that speak to things like accountability or addressing sin issues or even church discipline, you know what you won't find? You will not find the elders being tasked with taking care of all of it. I know that sounds wild, but it's true. I would challenge you go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 18, for example, this afternoon, and look at Christ's words about going to someone who has sinned. You remember Matthew 18? You remember, you, you go to somebody if they've sinned against you, and if you repent, that's great. If not, then, then you grab a couple of more, and, you, and, and you, you sort of continue to press. And if that person who has sinned, if they really dig their heels in, then eventually you, you tell it to the, the church. Here's my question. Whose job is all of that? Who's the primary actor in Matthew chapter 18? The answer is the church. It's the congregation. The elders aren't even mentioned. The same is true, of course, of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When it goes viral that the Reformed Baptist Church of Corinth has a member living in gross and heinous sexual sin, what does the Apostle Paul do? Does he shoot off a a private email to the so-called senior pastor telling him that he needs to handle this stuff all by himself? No. Truth be told, the apostle writes a public letter to the church, calling the church to action. Again, in 1 Corinthians 5, there is no mention of elders or pastors. Now, don't get me wrong, am I suggesting that the elders shouldn't lead in the process? Of course not. Neither am I saying that the elders have no authority or jurisdiction in cases of church discipline or sin. Obviously, that is not the case. But what I am saying is this, the purity of the church, both in its belief and in its behavior, is not the sole responsibility of the elders. It is the responsibility of the congregation. To be blunt, redeeming grace, it is your job. You should be discipling one another, you should be encouraging one another. You should be correcting and teaching and rebuking and loving and caring and admonishing one another. And when one of our own is, verse 1, caught in any transgression, it is not the elders or the pastors who were called upon to handle it. It's you, it's the church. So, for example, when there is gossip or complaining, whining or murmuring in the church. Or when one of the sheep wanders from the fold and hasn't been in church for a few weeks. Or when it comes to your attention that one of our brothers or sisters is dating or in some sort of romantic relationship with a non-Christian. When you discover a husband is no longer leading his family, or, or when it becomes apparent a wife is no longer submitting to her husband. Church, where there is anger, and unforgiveness, and drunkenness, and pornography, and lying among us, It is the church's responsibility. It is your job as members of this congregation to reach out, to intervene, and to seek to restore such a one. That is what true spirituality looks like. That's what love lived out looks like. And as we're doing this, as we're being the Christians that God has called us to be, we know from verse 1 that the aim in all of this is restoration. We're told in verse 1, you who are spiritual should restore him. And that verb restore is a graphic one. It's actually a medical term for healing that means to return to its former condition. We might think of a doctor who sets a broken bone. Well, in much the same way, the erring sinner needs to be corrected. But let's be clear. Just as the doctor's aim is to heal his patient, so the church's aim is to restore this brother or sister. Now, church, we would do well to note in all of this that we are called upon to do this because in doing so, the congregation is following in the steps of her Savior. Here's what I mean. Christ himself, what he has done for us is what? Well, he has sought us out and restored us, restored us to the Father. Isn't this why Christ came? Why he was born? Why he died? The whole point and purpose of the cross, the very shedding of Christ's precious blood, was it not to restore us, we who were, verse 1, caught in transgression. So Christ sees our great need. he, He intervenes. He brings about restoration. And as the people of Christ, we are to follow our Lord. Christ is the great restorer of sinners. Amen. Well, the church is to go and do likewise. Notice again, this is laid at the feet, not of the paid staff of the church, but before the feet of the spiritual one. Verse 1, is clear, you who are spiritual should restore him. Well, okay, who's that? Who's the spiritual one? Hopefully, it's you. I say that because when Paul speaks of the spiritual one here, remember, Galatians 5 and 6 are not a chasm that exists between them. The spiritual one of verse 6 is the one who was walking in the Spirit in chapter 5. That is to say, the spiritual one is simply the mature and growing Christian. Again, it's you. It's you. But he adds a caution, doesn't he? Make sure you do this work of restoration, middle of verse 1, in a spirit of gentleness. You don't need to pounce upon this sinning brother or sister the way a lion pounces upon a gazelle. But rather you need to come alongside him or her the way a mother tends to the needs of her newborn. Gently. Gently. And be careful. That's really the thrust of the end of verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Don't think that you're immune. Don't, Don't go at this whole thing as if you were invincible, have fully arrived, or are impervious to sin. You aren't. I'm not. None of us are. And so we need to make sure that as we put our arm out to this brother or sister who is caught in sin, we meet, we need to make sure that we're pulling him up and he's not pulling us down, right? Again, this is true spirituality. It's not levitating in the corner. It's restoring It's caring enough to get involved in the life of our brother or sister. From there, Paul mentions a second way in which true spirituality is lived out. Verse 2 is as clear as it is concise. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That church is the look of love lived out in real life. It will look like you and me bearing each other's burdens. Now, this whole idea of bearing burdens, it presupposes three realities. Three realities that we often tend to forget. To begin with, Christians have burdens. Right? Sometimes we get the idea that as Christians, we should always have a happy, perfect life. As Christians, we're not allowed to struggle. We can never be low. It's sort of put out there in the ether that if, that if we're really walking with Christ, then every day will be a rainbow with a pot of gold at the end of it. But that's not true. That's not true biblically, it's not true historically, and it is certainly not true experientially. It is not uncommon for Christians to have Volkswagen sized burdens weighing them down. Which brings us to the second reality this passage presupposes you can help. You can help. Scripture wouldn't call us to bear one another's burdens if that was impossible. Or a waste of time. Or an exercise in futility. The fact of the matter is, you really can come alongside me. You really can hold me up. And you really can strengthen me. And you know what? I need that. And I can return the favor. It's important at this point to remember that Christ not only restored us, but He did so through bearing our burdens. Think about that. What was our greatest burden? What was the heaviest burden of them all? Was it not our sin? Was it not our sin and the condemnation and the wrath that our sin provoked? So Christ comes. And He bears our greatest burden on the cross. Forever taking away our sin. He doesn't just pay the penalty that we owe it, as glorious as that is. But in and through the cross of Christ, the very wrath of God that was once against us has now been satisfied. If you are a Christian, your guilt has been taken away and you have been cleansed and made right in God's sight, all on account of Christ, who He is and what He has done. Christ so loves us that He took all the weight of our sin and He put it upon His own shoulders. This really is the scandal of the gospel. Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Like I said, this passage presupposes that we have burdens, that we can help. And then finally, that pride is dangerous. Pride is dangerous. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, I can't bear your burden if I don't know you have a burden, and I won't know you have a burden. if you, in your pride, don't tell me you have a burden. You dig? Right Pride says, "I'm fine. Pride says, I can do it alone. Pride says, well, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to make anybody worry. I don't want to just sort of dump on somebody. Pride says a whole bunch of stuff. But all of it comes with a hiss. Hiss. Beloved Christ bore our burdens on the cross once for all, taking away our sins. Because of Him, we are right in God's sight. That's all true. But you know what is equally true? Right now, in our pilgrimage, we still at times find ourselves weighed down. Do we not? Well, who is to help? And, and the initial answer that you might have, because we sort of live in a very pietistic, individualistic context, is, is to hear a question like, well, who is to help? And we we'll immediately, well, Christ is to help. And that's true. But that's not the totality of the answer. You want to know who is to help? Look around. Look around. This is the means of grace that Christ has given to you. The church exists, among other things, to help you and I bear our burdens. And the point is that when we do that, we're loving one another. Allow me to mention a third way in which we see authentic spirituality manifested. True spirituality is when we humbly And helpfully serve others. But again, even here at this juncture, pride tends to prey upon us. I say that because not only will pride keep us from being served, it will also keep us from serving. Let me put it this way. Christian, you will not serve the church unless you are humble. And you will not be helpful to the church unless you are humble. Which means that pride is termites in the floorboards. This seems to be what Paul is getting at in verses 3, 4, and 5. If if you pick up a a commentary on Galatians, what you will find is that that Galatians 3, 4, and 5 is a a very sort of enigmatic part of Galatians. One that causes commentators and scholars and theologians to scratch their heads. Verse 3 says, "For, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That part seems clear enough. Let me ask you this. What's what's the quickest way to pull the wool over your own eyes? Well, the quickest way to do that is to think that you are something special. Which is sort of the nature of pride and deception, isn't it? You might might go back, if you can, even before the garden where our first parents fell. And and you might think of, of Satan and sort of... How he rebelled? Well, well, the short answer seems to be from Scripture that Satan rebelled because he was blinded by his pride. Or to use the language of our passage, he thought he was something when he was actually nothing. Which means that true spirituality is when we see ourselves, please hear this, as nothing more than sinners saved by grace. That's what we are. And when that undeniable reality, when, when that truth doesn't just sort of get into our heads, but also our hearts, when that truth that we are needy and dependent sinners who are saved by grace and it is all of Christ and none of me, when that reality grips you and when it captivates you, you know what will be birthed? Utter humility, utter humility, which will in turn compel you to serve the person next to you. Reminds me of a story I heard a while ago about Muhammad Ali. Apparently, he was on a plane ready to take off when the flight attendant approached him and told him to to put on his seat. Ali responded, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The flight attendant, very quick-witted as she was, immediately shot back, Superman don't need no airplane, neither. Buckle up. <laughs> Christian, we must resist the temptation to view ourselves as some sort of spiritual superman. We need to be humbled. We need to serve the church. We need to put our seatbelt on. I should point out it was this attitude, this attitude of humility That moved Christ to serve us. There's that wonderful passage from Philippians chapter 2 which reminds us that we are to have this mind among ourselves. That is, this mind of humility, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. The passage goes on to say, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, from the perspective of Philippians chapter 2, our whole salvation is wrapped up in what? The humility of Christ. He who left glory... Took on flesh, humbled himself as one of us, and yielded to the vicious nature of the cross. So that his death was the death of the humble God. And as his followers, we should emulate him by serving one another in humility. Verse four seems to pick up on the same idea. Like I said, verses three, four, and five are are difficult to discern completely. I I think from thirty thousand feet we can we can sort of get the picture. Verse four says, "But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor." Paul seems to be saying something like this. He, Quit comparing your resume with the persons next to you. Instead, you need to honestly examine your life in light of God's Word and in light of the the being of God. Why? Why do we need to do that? Because doing so will be the pin that pops the balloon that is our pride. And then, when we can fit that shirt over our recently deflated head, will actually love one another. And ironically enough, when you humble yourself and helpfully serve others, you can take pride, or verse 4, you can boast in the fact that you've been used by God to serve others. In the same vein, verse 5 strikes us as strange. I say that because Paul adds, for each will have to bear his own load, to which the astute Bible reader should immediately say, what? Really? We're supposed to bear our own load because just about two seconds ago up in verse 2, we were called upon not to bear our own load, but instead to bear others' burdens. So which is it, Paul? Is it verse 2 or is it verse 5? It's a good question. The answer lies in recognizing a difference that is not immediately obvious in the English, but one that is in the original Greek. In verse 2, Paul uses a word for bear there, meaning a weight or heavy load. Think think of an 18-wheeler hauling thousands and thousands of pounds of freight across the country. He's bearing a burden, right? Right? But then here in verse 5, Paul uses an entirely different word, even though the ESV translates it as the same as in verse 2. The word for bear here in verse 5, unlike the one in verse 2, refers not to a semi-hauling freight, but to a backpack. So the point seems to be this. There are times in life in which we need massive help, verse 2. We need someone to bear our burdens. This, there is freight on me and I can't move. But there's also other times in life, and I don't mean to to be too rough here, but there's other times when we simply need to do what God requires of us. He's given us a backpack. It might be heavy, but we, we can handle it. And we need to bear that load. And we need to do it without comparing ourselves to others, and we need to do it without complaining about others. But in case we miss the forest for the trees, let's not lose our focus. What Paul is saying is that true spirituality is not you levitating over in the corner with your eyes rolled back into your skull. That's not spirituality. True spirituality, love lived out, will look like you and I humbly and helpfully serving others in the church. Remember, just as Christ humbly and helpfully served us through His cross. This brings us to the fourth and final way in which true spirituality manifests itself. Here's your fourth word, sharing sharing with others. Verse 6 announces, let the one who was taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Notice the relationship. There is the teacher and there is the taught, and both have something to share, don't they? The one who teaches, end of verse 6, We might say today that the preaching pastor has been equipped by God to teach the congregation. In fact, we actually derive our English word catechism from the Greek word that Paul uses there for teach. In the original Greek, it's a word that refers really to any kind of oral instruction in biblical truth. So picture the scene. The minister opens his Bible, and he opens his mouth. That is what he shares. Then you have the congregation, or as verse 6 puts it, the one who is taught the word. Well, what is he to do? Verse 6, share all good things. So if I can, if I can be somewhat crass, the minister opens his Bible and his mouth. The church is to open her ear and her wallet. In other words, the sharing all good things most certainly means material or financial support. And other passages throughout the Scriptures affirm this. For example, the Lord Jesus Himself declares in Luke chapter 10, "...the laborer deserves his wages." You can go look in Luke chapter 10 this afternoon in the context. Christ is clearly talking about material support for those who proclaim his word. Or you might consider 1 Timothy chapter 5, where Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And if there was any doubt as to what this double honor consists of, Paul, in the very next verse, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, a law, oddly enough, referring to animal husbandry, says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then... This is all in 1 Timothy 5. Immediately after quoting that old covenant law, he actually goes on to quote Christ, that passage I just referenced to go from Luke chapter 10, and the laborer deserves his wages. Right? So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, like in a matter of three verses, you have old covenant law precedent, then you have Christ himself, and then you have apostolic injunction. If there was still any doubt, we need only look to 1 Corinthians 9. There we are told, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So one of the ways we love, one of the ways we demonstrate authentic spirituality is by sharing. And specifically here in the context, ministers of the gospel should be financially supported by their congregation. Or if you will allow me to quote the Second London Confession of Faith, chapter 26, paragraph 10, puts it this way. The churches to whom pastors minister must not only give them all due respect— but also must share with them from all their good things according to their ability. They must do this, the confession says, so their pastors may have a comfortable living without having to be entangled in secular matters and so they can show hospitality to others. That's chapter 26, paragraph 10. Let me be quick to say, my family is altogether grateful for how redeeming grace has been both diligent and faithful in this matter. We are not losing weight in the Damarell family, and for that, we thank you. Now, as I mentioned earlier... There is actually quite a bit of confusion these days, even among Christians when it comes to true spirituality. Thankfully, brothers and sisters, I think we actually have a very clear and compelling picture before us. True spirituality is love lived out. It looks like us restoring, bearing, serving, and sharing. When the rubber meets the road, that is true spirituality so let me ask you one final question given all of that we've seen given all of this what does this require what does what does true spirituality necessitate and the answer is other people the answer is one another the answer is the church Everything that we have seen requires that we be so connected and committed to one another that we can actually restore, that we can actually bear and actually serve and actually share, which is sort of a long way to simply say true love, which is the mark of authentic spirituality, is worked out in the midst of a messy church, one full of imperfect people, where we learn to love each other by getting our hands dirty with each other. So my encouragement to you this morning, Redeeming Grace, is this. Lean in. Press on in the grace of Christ. Know this, Christ has showered His love upon us. And so we ought then, in turn, to love each other. Join with me in prayer. We come before We come before you this morning, Father in the name of Christ, uh, praying that you would erase from our minds and our hearts any idea of 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 loving one another that doesn't have one another involved. I, in other words, again, we are so prone to thinking that we can live. The Christian life, all by ourselves, hold up in our rooms, Bible in hand, as if we don't need anybody. And the fact of the matter is we have been confronted with the air of that thinking this morning and pray that you would remove it from us as individuals, from our families, and from us as a church. Instead, we pray that the presence of your Holy Spirit would be evident in, again, our lives, our families, and this church, and that it would take the shape of very practical ways in which we would love one another. We pray that this would be the case. We pray that this would be the case so that the world would know that we are the disciples of Christ by our love for one another. We ask these things, Father, again, praying in the name of Christ for the power and presence of your Spirit to accomplish these things. And God's people said, Amen.